what is invisible to a Roman is so stark to us. Um, and what we, what we really need to do is to take ourselves out of the, the, the culture that we're in and we, and we see that it's, it's not natural, obvious or universal that you should keep um, members of your society that will not be as economically productive. Why should you? Why? Mm. Oh, because you should. No, but why? Because <laughs> it's the right thing to do. Well, lots of people have disagreed. What, 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 what is it? And I, I think the most profound answer is because Jesus because he is the one who descends to the rubbish dump, you know, because he is the one who is for the little guy. He became the little guy. You know, he died that slave's death. And you can encounter the most divine. So, there's, so that there's nothing more divine than compassion. Welcome to Reenchanting, the podcast from seenandunseen.com. I'm Justin Briley. And I'm Belle Tindall. We talk to interesting people about the way in which the Christian story has shaped our world, whether a secular post-Christian culture can be re-enchanted with the wonder and mystery of that story again. So if you're listening, do please tell other people about the podcast. Do rate and review us. It helps other people to discover re-enchanting. If you're watching, then please do like and subscribe over on YouTube. It helps more people to encounter the programme. And today we are joined by none other than... Glenn Skruna, who is an author, speaker, filmmaker, and director of the charity Speak Life. His most recent book, very conveniently right there, is The Air We Breathe and has been widely praised as a guide to how we came to believe in freedom, kindness, progress, and equality. So it's a whistle-stop tour of 2,000 years worth of history, showing why it was the Christian revolution that gave the West its moral instinct on compassion, equality, consent, freedom, and likewise, I believe in science, progress and enlightenment aren't the product of atheist rationalism, but they were a gift to us from our Judeo-Christian forebears. So in a sense, just as we barely notice the air we breathe, hence the title, modern people barely realise that the values and ideals they hold actually come from Christianity. At least that's Glenn's argument. So why is he so keen to remind people about this today? We're going to be finding out on Reenchanting today as we look at Reenchanting, specifically kindness, equality and progress, but probably a few other things too. Mm. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> but before we get onto any of that, we always have our first question. It's always the same. I reckon our listeners would revolt if it changed. <laughs> so what are you reading? What is on your bedstand right now? Okay. Um, unfollow uh, Megan Phelps Roper. Oh, um, oh okay. So she, she came she out She was of... the former Westboro Baptist Church right. person. Yeah, yeah she right. was kind of in charge of their social media. And Twitter de-radicalized her. So mm. it's a fascinating story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then she's gone on, obviously, to, to have this podcast with J.K. Rowling. And this, this is where I started to learn about Megan Phelps Roper. Oh, she's the one who's interviewing J.K. Mm. Rowling with the witch trials of J.K. Rowling. Oh, okay. And you get to see, yeah, Megan Phelps Roper's kind of upbringing within this. I mean, it's basically a family, mm. um, a, a very dysfunctional family and, and a cult. Um, but she quotes a lot of Bible <laughs> and she strings it together in, in a way and, and she clearly has sympathy with her family, mm. love for her family, and there's not, a, there's not bitterness to it. But also she's sort of exposing kind of all the dysfunctionality of mm. it and coming out of it. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating read. Yeah, yeah highly recommend Found it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you get a sense, oh, you might have not got to the end of it yet, where she lands up on faith given her background? I don't know. I'm literally like a chapter away from okay. the end. Uh, 
I I think I I don't know. I suspect Faith is in the rearview mirror for her at the moment. Mm. She does not speak with bitterness or acrimony about mm. the scriptures and, and and kind of quotes them very positively. Um, but you can understand yeah, it would be totally. a huge deal for her to step back into mm. uh, yeah. a, a Christian world given given yeah. her past. I'd, I'd love to talk to her more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about your own journey, mm. Glenn. Tell us tell us about you're a Christian. What what was your pathway towards faith yourself? Uh, grew up in a Christian home, going to church and that sort of thing. Um, so I was the good kid in Sunday school. And if you stick your hand in the air and say Jesus, that you get a gold star, you know. <laughs> but it is the answer to every question anyway. So yes, as I've learnt, and yes. I've I've learnt that there is actually a quite sophisticated way in which Jesus is the answer to every question. <laughs> but that was not where I was when I was eight years old. Um, and I was probably the good kid in the youth group as well, and I probably gave my life to Jesus about a thousand times mm-hmm. in my teenage years. Oh, you were one of those. I was one of those. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. Every altar call, Every, I was there. I was there. Right. And then it didn't seem to work, oh. whatever working means. And mm. so I would do it again, and then I would do it again. I would, and like the Garden of Gethsemane became like my, my go-to passage of Scripture because I was the what would Jesus do kind of a guy. And so I read the whole Bible as though here's Jesus, the example and let's try and do it like Jesus did. And what did Jesus do the night before he died? He gave his life to God mm. right, in the most melodramatic way in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I would volunteer to walk the dog like into this wooded place just like Jesus, right? And at times I would even press my face into the, into the dirt just like Jesus and say, God, take me, use me, your will be done, and that sort of thing. And that didn't work either. And so in my melodramatic teenage ways, I, w- I was just trying to do it again and again and what, again. What were you wanting mm. to work? What was it you were sort of looking for? I was listening to a lot of um, Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. I think I wanted spiritual heroin. Okay. Right? So I, I, like I, want, I don't know. I, I just wanted the, the funny feeling in my stomach and the light mm. behind my eyes and the halo above my head or what, whatever it was. Whatever it was, I didn't mm. have it. Mm. And then... After the 998th time of praying such a prayer, you know, how do you, how do you start feeling about God? You're, you're keeping on giving him your life, and he seems like he's hiding behind the sofa, um, not wanting to take your calls. So, uh, so then I went to university and tried to have as good a time as I could without God, really. And so my university years were very much me uh, with faith in the rearview mirror. Um, but it was at the, at the end of university when all sorts of things had fallen in a heap for me that I got in, invited to church and I started to go just to hate the preacher. And then I went back to hate him some more mm. because it was a bit of a hobby. Sure. And of course, now it's my day job. So I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm watching the guys in the back row with their arms folded. And I think, just you wait, kiddo. Just, just you wait. And I picked up the gospels. And it was, it was really meeting Jesus in the gospels that really turned things around for me. And just to bring the story full, full circle, the, the friend that invited me to church I was talking to him about reading through the Gospels and I'd just gotten to the Garden of Gethsemane and I said to mm. him, you know, this has always haunted me because I just can't do it like Jesus. And my mm. friend was very wise. He just said, Glenn, do you think you're Jesus? <laughs> and I was like, well, not in every respect, obviously. <laughs> but he was like, Glenn, that's not how you read the Bible. Like the, the, you in that story, you're Peter. Mm. Right. Yeah. And yeah. what's Peter doing? You know, like worthless, faithless, <laughs> you know, sleeping Peter. And Jesus prays for him. and dies for him and rises for him. And it's not your life given to God, it's God's life given for you. And I was like, oh, wow. Flipped it around. That that was the the flip that that really made a difference. Yeah. 
And so fast forward a bit of time and we have the Air We Breathe. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I have on my notes here and I say that it's on my notes because I want people to know these aren't my words, (laughs) that it's Dominion for Dummies. (laughs) Dominion is in Tom Holland's book, Dominion for Dummies. And Tom Holland probably gets mentioned on just about every episode of Reenchanting. So it's like, it's Reenchanting Tom Holland bingo for me. I I think maybe we should stop now. This will be our last time. Maybe, but there is a definite good reason to compare this because... I think <laughs> there well, are comparisons and there are comparisons, they're, they're, Justin. It, yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what, what Dominion for Dummies is that a fair description of this book? I, th- I I hope I'm the one that actually generated that in the first place. So I'm I'm always calling oh, you it Dominion started, for Dummies, right? Okay, Dominion for Dummies, and I'm the it dummy. Was, it was and a I marketing usually, yeah. all along. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I usually follow it up by saying, "And I'm the dummy," right? But yeah. but um, yeah, I, I guess Tom Holland's Dominion thesis um, has gained a lot of traction and um, it sort of sits in uh, a world within academia and a world now uh, of, of kind of popular um, academic interest and intellectual mm-hmm. interest in the Christianization of the West and just how deeply Christian we are. And so like um, the, the easiest handle that people have for it, oh, it's kind of the Tom Holland thing, but where where Tom Holland kind of takes you through um, history in a, in a painstaking way and in a fascinating way and, and brilliantly written way. Um, I kind of hang my story on seven values that, that mm. get you through mm. from Genesis to George Floyd is kind of the, the time span. And I, I sort of take people through uh, equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. And along the way, I sort of do a little bit of history, but I'm not really a historian. Nothing heavy. Nothing heavy. Yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah. great. I'm more an ideas person. Yeah. He's more the historian kind of person, yeah. Yeah, so the ear we breathe. Can, I, can you chat us through that title in particular? Because for mm. anyone who hasn't read Dominion, right. if those people exist, no, I'm joking. <laughs> um, the, can you talk us through that title in particular and what mm. the thesis is that undergirds that? Yeah. So I'm so I'm from Australia originally, and um, I always notice when I fly back into Sydney how sweet the air smells, oh. um, and it's because of the eucalyptus trees. So many so many gum trees, they're just mentholating the air. It's mm. like a cough mixture carried upon the breeze <laughs> nice. the whole time. In but you never notice that, like in in Australia, no. you say, "Oh, the the air's so sweet smelling." Yeah. Isn't that mm. even what he's talking yeah. about? Um, and it's just really an, an analogy for, for the ways in which the atmosphere around us is invisible to us, but it is all pervading and it completely sustains us. And I think our moral values are like that. Mm. Um, you don't really recognize how odd you are, how strange you are until you come mm. out of your culture and visit a different culture. And then you're suddenly, oh my goodness, they do things differently here. Just a simple example, you, you, you go to somebody else's Christmas and you know how Christmas runs, and these people are getting it wrong. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and you never thought you were traditional. Mm. You never thought you were set in your ways until mm. you went to somebody else's Christmas and they kept getting Christmas wrong, right? And, and we need to do that with all kinds of moral imagination and intuitions and, and just the values by which we live our lives. We think it is natural, obvious, and universal to have things like human rights. We think it's obvious, natural, and universal to have a, a certain compassion ethic that says the best society is the one that, that stands up for the least and the last and the lost and the marginalized. Mm-hmm. And all, all these sorts of things which we, we consider to be utterly natural, mm-hmm. completely the air we breathe. What I want to do is take us out of our bubble and take us to non-Christian, but in particular pre-Christian civilizations and show us that what we think of as natural and obvious is nothing of the sort and the ways in which we have 
adopted these values has come through the Jesus revolution, a.k.a. Christianity. Mm. Do you, before we leap into some of those specific areas, with Tom Holland, with your book, maybe with other people talking along these lines, do you think we're starting to see a shift in people's assumptions? Do you think we're now helping to – is it being coming clearer to people that actually the values you hold are rather unique in this time, place, and culture? Um, you know, the other metaphor that's used frequently is the fish in the goldfish bowl, you know. Right. Um are people starting to see the water they're swimming in and, right. you know, realizing the air they breathe has a particular scent? Yeah, I think absolutely we are. Um, whether that is um, an entirely positive development or not uh, remains to be seen. The reason why we're waking up to how Christianized our values have become is because of the receding influence of Christianity mm. on our views. And now there's, there's more of a kind of a, a free-for-all um, in terms of which way our society goes and who is in charge of that. Mm. And so the ferocity of the culture wars kind of wake us up to the fact that we do have these deeply embedded, um, these deeply embedded intuitions, but intuitions are not enough when you're actually trying to have a conversation with somebody else. They need to say, you know, you need to be able to justify them, to ground mm. them. Mm. And simply to say, well, hashtag be kind you start to say, well, no, but why? Like, what, mm. what, is, mm. what is underneath all this? And so I am noticing definitely that people are starting to say things just in regular conversation. They are saying things like, well, it's all come from Christianity anyway, hasn't it? Uh, a, a guy at the school gates, a dad of a friend of my daughter's, um, just said that to me the other day. He, he just said, gosh, it, it all comes from Christianity, doesn't it? Um, never really read the Bible. Where should I start? You know? <laughs> um, and, and another guy in the town where I live has just said to me, um, it's, it's all biblical, isn't it? Like, it, like the Bible has built, built the world. Um, what time is church? You know, like, <laughs> there are about five or six sentences in between those two sentences, and he still hasn't come yet. But I think, I think there is something in the water that, that people are recognizing. Um, we've run out of our story. Hmm. There isn't that framework overarching us anymore. We're all into vibes and we're very strongly into our vibes of compassion and equality and all that kind of stuff. But what, what is the framework that actually makes sense of those things? Because something institutional like Christianity has receded, we're kind of recognizing um, that we have vi vibes and no foundation. And, and more and more people are waking up to the fact that what used to hold us together was the Christian story, and maybe it's worth checking out again. Mm. Whether they're actually returning to church and actually checking that out is a separate question. Mm. It seems like quite a particular moment in time. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, where Christianity is sort of taking a step back and people are like, oh my goodness, what is there without it? And then I've got a few thoughts in that. Has that ever happened before? Mm. And how did that play out? But then also it's quite interesting that if we're talking about, say, 2000 years, if you want to talk about Judeo-Christian values are a whole lot longer than that. But um, in the span of 2000 years, it hasn't been very long that we've been without the Christian influence. And we're like, Get us back, get us back. Um, or some people are, I'm not saying everyone's like that. So that's quite interesting as well, is how quickly we've been like, oh my goodness, we need to get back to the source of the fruit. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, maybe, you know, if AD 410 and, you know, the, the Visigoths sack Rome and, and you've got this, you know, titanic civilization in the Western half of Rome, um, 
and as Rome is, you know, splintered into like dozens and dozens, hundreds of, of little mini states, um, that that might sound similar, you mm. know, in, in lots of different ways. And and at that point, you know, God raised up a, an Augustine who who comes and you know writes the City of God and says, you know, the City of Man, this is what happens with Babel is always mm. scattered, right? And and we've become scattered, and you know, it's this vast um, effort on Augustine's part and, and the rest of the, you know, the, the Western church to knit together society on the basis of covenant and on the basis of a theological vision. Um, and, you know, I, I guess is that sort of similar, except we're in a, a more difficult position because we just don't have that sense of transcendent overarching, you know, narrative that they mm. did have in the fifth century. Mm. Um, yeah. We, yeah, we we are really surviving on fumes at the moment. You know, I'm a biological survival machine. You know, and I believe in kindness. Yeah, you know. It, mm. I, I guess what might be helpful before we come back to talking about sort of that that idea of whether we can continue with the Christian ideals and heritage without the reality of the story behind it is is to look at some of the ways in which you do sketch out in the book the ways in which those values came to represent our moral instincts today and how unusual they were given the past. Um, because I think a lot of people are quite skeptical at the outset of hearing, well, let's take equality, you know, well, obviously it's obvious that that's a basic human right. Okay. Why, why would you argue with that? Yeah. You're just proving my thesis there, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it is so obvious. And yet it's really interesting in conversations, um, uh, with friends who aren't Christians, um, and I point it out, and I try to point it out when it happens, is that on the one hand, they will say a sentence that is completely in agreement with what you mm. just said. Equality is absolutely obvious. At some point in the conversation, almost always, they'll say, yeah, but actually people are really, really different, aren't they? Mm -hmm. like, yes, no, they really are different. So, and, so how do you look at different people and assign to them a moral dignity and worth that is equal in what realm does that equality exist? You know, because I, I could take any two people and judge them by any one metric, and you're going to find that this this guy is smarter than that guy, and this guy's faster than that guy, this guy's more economically viable than that guy. This, you know, on any measurement, you're going to find difference. Mm -hmm. Where do you find the equality? Like, how do you, can you cut the person open and discover like <laughs> this this essence of humanity? And you might say, well, the, the DNA of humans is is what's common to us all, but what follows from the fact that we have the same DNA? What morally follows from that? Um, well, let, let me give you a quote, Yeah, because I, I wrote this down specifically, because I remember when I had a conversation with Stephen Pinker, very well-known sort mm. of humanist, psychologist, Harvard professor. Um, he, he said this once when, when he was asked to justify in this interview equality on, on the basis of the fact essentially that perhaps it comes through science or DNA. He said, the fact we're made of the same stuff we're the same species, we're all sentient, we all have the capacity to experience pleasure and pain, we all have the capacity to reason. He said, that is a pretty rock-solid foundation for universal human rights and universal human dignity. And I could imagine at the dinner table, your friend saying, oh, did you see what Stephen Pinker said? I, th right. I think that's probably where equality comes from. Yeah, but it doesn't, does it? <laughs> because, um, you know, Himmler 
Yeah, I'm going to go straight for the Nazis, okay. aren't I? You know, Why not? It's, it's God, God one rule. How, how far into the interview are we? 15 minutes in. 15 minutes yeah. in, we, we went to the Nazis. But, you know, Himmler says, you know, man is but a part of this world. And if man is but a part of this world, um, why the human exceptionalism? And, you know, and Goebbels, Goebbels said, you know, we have never denied that the Jew is a man in the same way that a flea is also an animal. And he's like, well, well so what? Mm-hmm. Um, and if in the wild the strong eat the weak, then why not in human society have a master race and a slave race? And, and especially if biologically we are here via competition, then I actually quote Steven Pinker in, in the book because he, he has a, an article in 2012 where he says, if sacrifice for the sake of your tribe is virtuous, um, then fascism is the ultimate virtue and human rights would be the ultimate selfishness. You know? mm-hmm. So the same, the same Stephen Pinker who says, oh, we all share the same DNA and we're all, we can all reason and all that kind of stuff. I, I want to put that together with, you know, okay, survival of the fittest requires that, yes, there'll be cooperation between us if we're in the same tribe, but... We're going to take on the other guys. And it's the competition. We cooperate mm. in order to, to compete with the others. And actually, we are here because of um, the efficacious violence of homo sapiens in our ability to gain dominance in the, in the struggle for survival. Yeah. Um, deri- I, I still don't see where you're deriving human rights and equality in that sense. And I... I, I you know, I, I think T.S. Eliot was right. He said, if, if we remove from the word human everything that the supernatural has given to us, what we are left with is simply um, a very clever, adaptable, and mischievous animal. Mm. And what follows from us being very clever, adaptable, mischievous animals? I, I would not say that the Universal Decla- Declaration of Human Rights derives from that. I don't know. Yeah. So we're, what's your argument then? Where does equality derive from, if not from um, just the fact that we are all humans and therefore just naturally deserving of it? Well, so um, Yuval Noah Harari, um, who wrote Sapiens and wrote Homodeus, um, he absolutely nails it when he says it has come from the stories that we have told about God, about humans being made in God's image. Um, of course, what... Harari then wants to do is say, well, we know that those stories are false. And he just leaves hanging in the air um, what we do with the human rights story and the human equality story. But on page one of the Bible, you know, we are made in God's image, male and female, equally in God's image, equally with dominion over the world. Christ comes as the second Adam um, who descends to the bottom of the hierarchy, dies the slave's death, rises up again, and then invites us all to a table in which no one is a lord except him. And we're all brothers and sisters in, in the same church family. And then increasingly over history, you get the eking out of that spiritual, theological, church-based truth into more secular spheres. And this starts to be more of the way that we start to understand humans more generally but I think apart from that story, you'll get a Yuval Noah Harari saying, that's where human rights come from. If you cut somebody open, you don't find human rights written within their, you know, their, their mm. genome. It comes in the stories that we've told ourselves about who, who human beings are. Mm. Harari says, the God story is not true. 
what do we do with the human rights story? Mm. And that's a, that's, that's a question that he leaves for, for all of us. I imagine this is a common rebuttal, not mm-hmm. re- but a question that you get, in, because the natural question, therefore, is, but Christians were complicit in the slave trade. Right. right. How can those, how do you put those two things together? How are they the, the source of equality, and yet they denied it systematically in, in uh, countless yeah. situations? Christians are the worst. Yeah, like, Christians are the worst. I, I, I put this on my Twitter just the other day that, you know, Christians are have most blood on their hands when it comes to things like colonization, yeah. when it comes to religious violence, mm-hmm. the Inquisition, the Crusades, slavery. We have the most blood on our hands, not because the body count at the hands of Christians has been worse. It, it hasn't. But because at the heart of our faith is Christ who sheds his blood for his enemies and has such kindness and compassion for his enemies. Therefore, for any Christian to take on board the, the to take Christ as their savior and then to act as a, an enslaver or to act as a conquistador or, or to go on a crusade is to absolutely invert the Christian story. So it's not that Christians, it's not that Christians have given us equality and rights and compassion and all these things. Um, John Dixon, the, uh, Australian evangelist and, and, and speaker, um, he, he doesn't like being called an evangelist. He calls himself a public advocate for Christianity, which is, which is a much better title. Yeah, much cooler. <laughs> much, much cooler title. Um, but he, he says, you know, Jesus has given us a beautiful tune to sing. The song is unsurpassed. The, the song is unparalleled. Christians have sometimes been the worst at singing. it. Sometimes we've been so off-key. Sometimes it's been cacophonous. But the song is good. And have Christians been slavers? Have, yes. Have, have Christians justified slavery standing on the Bible? Mm. Yes. Um, but as Tom Holland kind of notes, there, there is an ambivalence at the heart of a Christian doing that that is not there at the heart of an Enlightenment rationalist doing it. Um, a Christian who loves the Jesus who became a slave, as Philippians 2, for instance, says, and dies the slave's death in order to invite us into his freedom. Um, For me to believe that with all my heart and then do that is another level of hypocrisy and wickedness, which is why it's worse when Christians have done it. But it was precisely the, the Christian story of Christ dying the slave's death. It was precisely the Christian story of humans made in God's image that absolutely fired the abolitionist cause. You know, um, abolitionism was a movement largely of Quakers and evangelicals. There were some Anglicans as well um, involved in that very cause for particularly Christian reasons. Now, is it heinous that Christians had to oppose Christian slave owners? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it was, you know, it was Christians who ended up abolishing the thing. And when you consider that, that you know, slavery is, is pretty much a human universal when societies get to any, any kind of level, um, that's, worth, that's worth at least factoring in to our thinking about things. If slavery is a human universal and we look around the world and there was this one group of people who actually stopped doing it, that's one thing. It doesn't outweigh the evil of Christians having participated in it, but it does make you think, I think. Mm. 
Let's move on to another specific area, compassion or kindness. Mm. Uh, again, I could imagine someone mm. saying, well, Glenn, Christians don't have a monopoly on compassion and kindness. Uh, surely that is just something that you could explain in a sort of socio-evolutionary way. It makes sense to be kind to people around you because that leads to the flourishing of everyone, mm. your culture, your tribe, whatever. Um, you know, so yeah, what do you say to that? Why, why would you say compassion is a specifically Christian uh, ideal? Um, I think compassion in the form that we have it, and, and again, this is not to say that Christians are particularly compassionate um, any more than the singer of, you know, Handel's Messiah <laughs> is ne necessarily brilliant just because the song is brilliant. Mm. Um, again, Christians can be the worst. Um, but what kind of compassion would, would we have in a purely natural environment? Um, there was that teacher of the law in Luke chapter 10 um, who, um, you know, quotes the law to Jesus and, and says, you know, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And it's a classic question because I'm always asking that question. Who do I need to love today? Like, do I have to love, do I have to love that guy? I'm, I'm happy loving those who are nearest and dearest. I'm happy, you know, on a good day when my blood sugar is high, <laughs> I can be quite compassionate to the people who are close to me and who don't tick me off too much. Mm -hmm. But what about the next level out? What about widening the circle? And we're always wanting to do, you know, I, we all believe in love. Um, and we all love our family and maybe our clan and perhaps our tribe. But what about our enemies? You know, and, and this, is, this is the radical thing Jesus is saying. Like, love your enemies and not in a detached sense that, you know, I, I nurse in my, in my heart a sense of benevolence for the universe. Um, anyone can love the universe. I'm called to love my neighbor, even if my neighbor is my enemy. Mm -hmm. This is where it really bites. And so then Jesus goes and tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he, and he says, look, there's this guy, he's beaten up by the side of the road, and religion comes past, and religion is not the answer for this guy, right? Mm -hmm. the, the priest comes by, the Levite comes by, they pass on by, okay? Loving? I think not, you know? And, and the critique of Christians is like written throughout the Bible, <laughs> and, Jesus, and Jesus is critiquing the people of faith mm -hmm. the whole time. And then he casts the hero as who? The good Samaritan, the enemy. And, and so when you, when you say, can't other religions and faiths also show compassion? Mm. That's a profoundly Christian thing to think. <laughs> you know, like, like the good Samaritan is, is this enemy tribe, this, you know, the, the Jews would have considered, you know, he, he is the wrong religion, he's the wrong nationality, he's the wrong everything. And yet he is the one who then shows compassion. And then Jesus says, you know, go, go and do likewise. And we've been built on this story of compassion and love beyond the familial and beyond just your tribe, uh, but to love across boundaries, this kind of, this universal benevolence to the human race as such. And I, I would say, look at the fruit of that, because the fruit of that within Christian history has been the kind of charities that have established hospitals, for instance, or orphan care and, and that kind of thing and looked after the least and the last and the lost. And that kind of cascade of a compassion revolution that, that kind of erupted in the early centuries was based on, on that particular story. Can, can you sketch out that contrast then in that first century? Because I think that's mm -hmm. sometimes where the, the 
it's made most obvious just how different this is mm. because we can talk about hospitals and soup kitchens and the welfare right. state all having Christian roots today. Yeah. But it's sometimes when you contrast it with what the expectations were, the assumptions in and um, you know other cultures, yeah. the, the Greco-Roman culture and so on. Yeah. Well, I mean, so it's again, it's not that Christians have a monopoly on healthcare, for instance. It was the Greeks who wrote all the manuals of, of healthcare and Galen's Four Humors and all, all that kind of stuff and and manuals of midwifery and and so you know the, the Greeks gave us great you know theory about that kind of stuff and and the Romans they they had sort of sick bays mm. that were for your slaves and your soldiers when your slaves and your soldiers were no longer economically or militarily profitable for you you'd, you'd patch them, them up. together again yeah. <laughs> right. take yeah. them to the shop get them <laughs> patched up and make them profitable again but the idea that you would nurse the weak and the poor who could not pay for it. And um, that, that was a radical and revolutionary mm. kind of idea. And, and the idea of welfare states, I mean, the, the early dioceses were, were kind of miniature welfare states with the bishop presiding over it. And the, and the bishops were expected to be those who provided for the widow and the orphan and the outsider. And, um, so that, that kind of thing, and, and you get to see how odd that was or you could think of, you know, children being exposed. I mean, that that is almost a human universal um, among societies that you would allow the disabled to perish upon birth. You know, the the very first manual of midwifery in, in the first century. Um, uh, one of the opening chapters is um, how to discern the child that is worth rearing. Right. You know. Right. And and of course we go yikes. Mm. But the ancient people weren't going, yikes. They're going, well, we want to build an empire, right? We don't want people holding us back. And so the idea of exposing infants and that kind of infanticide. Just for those who aren't familiar with the phrase, I mean, you know, paint for us what exposure was. Yeah. This wasn't a sort of very sanitized way of doing away with unwanted infants. In lots of different ways. I mean, some were thrown down wells and some were drowned in rivers and some were just left on rubbish tips exposed to the elements and maybe the dogs get them or maybe people traffickers get them and put them to work in the brothels which in rome were for instance state-sponsored and where do they get all the women from well from warfare and from the exposure of infants and and so this was a, a common practice and and christians um utterly um despised it and stood against it and collected the children and reared them, you know, within communities. And it was this sort of compassion ethic that looks to a rubbish dump and says, um, I'm going to find something of God, actually, in the least and the last and the last. Because actually, you know, Christ died and a lot of crucifixion sites were rubbish dumps. It's, it's exactly what you would do with mm. people. They were refuse. And if our God descended there... There is where we meet God, you know, and and Jesus says in, in that famous parable in Matthew 25 that, you know, with the least and the last of the last, whatever you do for them, you are doing for me. Mm. And Christians have taken that very seriously, that um, what, what, what were they looking for when they toured the rubbish dumps trying to find children? Um, they, were, they were expressing compassion and they were, they were seeing God mm. in the face of the abandoned child. And, and this is just a, a radical view of the world. And again, it's not that Christians have been brilliant at living it out. I'm not brilliant at living it out. But I think we recognize it's a beautiful song to sing. When you um, 
painted that picture, something within me absolutely literally physically recoiled. And I imagine that's the same for anyone listening. And what about people who are listening and think, well, I've never stepped foot in a church. I do not associate with this Jesus guy or, or any of his teachings. Yeah, I still recoiled at that. Are you telling me that this isn't just me being a, a human? Yeah, I am saying that. Yeah. Um, and, and the way to convince you of that would be just, just to put you into other atmospheres and help you to breathe different mm. air. Because the, there are atmospheres in which people breathe that in and it's invisible to them, mm. utterly mm. invisible to them. Really almost impossible to imagine. There's like this letter that a soldier sends. He's from Alexandria, and it's it's written around the time of Christ, around the first century. Mm. And uh, he's he's on the battlefield, and he's writing back to his wife, and he knows that she's pregnant. And he says, you know, make sure to sell the cow by the spring, and you know, deal with so and so and his field. Um, I know you're pregnant. If uh, if it's a girl, expose it. If it's a boy, keep it. Uh, I'll be home by you know I'll, I'll be home by autumn. <laughs> Much love. You know, and it's just, it's just a bullet point in the midst of everything. And we gasp when we hear, if it's a girl, kill it. If it's a boy, keep it. We gasp at that. Nobody, and that's what's so fascinating about doing history. And this, this was Tom Holland's kind of journey. You know, what is invisible to a Roman is so stark to us. Um, and what we, what we really need to do is to take ourselves out of the, the, the culture that we're in and we, and we see that it's, it's not natural, obvious, or universal that you should keep um, members of your society that will not be as economically productive. Why should you? Why? Mm. Oh, because you should. No, but why? Because <laughs> it's the right thing to do. Well, lots of people have disagreed. What, 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 what is it? And I, I think the most profound answer is because Jesus because he is the one who descends to the rubbish dump, you know, because he is the one who was for the little guy. He became the little guy. You know, he died that slave's death. And you can encounter the most divine. So, there's, so that there's nothing more divine than compassion. It's, it's a supernatural thing. Because what is natural is the survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest. And what do you see in Jesus? You see the fittest sacrificed for we the weakest so that we, the weakest, might survive and thrive and pass on the compassion revolution. And, and when you see any aspect of compassion, I think you're starting to get in touch with something that's supernatural. And I just keep saying, well, just, just keep pulling at that thread because at the other end is Jesus. So what you're saying is what you would say to someone who uh, doesn't consider themselves at all a Christian or who would say, it's not even that I'm not a Christian, it's that I haven't even had any experience of it. You would say, well, the wrong thinking there or the thinking to be challenged there is that the air, if I take your metaphor, because it's a good one, the <laughs> air doesn't just exist in churches. Right. It's in your, it's in music, it's in film, it's in your home, it's in your right. school, it's in your friendship right. groups, it's in your university lectures. That's yeah. what you would yeah. say to them is you don't, yeah. you don't have to walk into a church to breathe this air. No. You already are. The stories that you inhabit minute by minute and that, that are being pumped at you are all stories about a hero who crosses the barrier into the unknown world with a, with a guide and he takes on you know, the enemy and he's utterly weak and it looks like all is lost and then somehow victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat and he comes back to you know, the beginning and he's wiser for the journey and all that. You know what that is, don't you? <laughs> like that, that is the gospel story. This is what Joseph Campbell was saying about stories and the, you know, the hero um, with a thousand faces, you know, he's, he's, he's saying the, the monomyth that we've all been raised on 
is a profoundly Christian thing because the, the, the church has been in charge of the culture for, you know, we've got a thousand years of crucifixions, you know, in the, in the National Art Gallery that, that are mm. just, this is, this is what we've been meditating on as a society. And it has shaped all the stories, it has shaped all the moral values, that shaped all your um, beliefs around child rearing, around education. It's it shaped all of that so that even if you're not at the source of things in church hearing the Jesus story, that story just pervades everything. What about progress? Because again, I'm going to put my secular atheist hat on. <laughs> so, <laughs> You've been doing that a lot yes, lately, yes. Justin. <laughs> in the absence of an atheist in this conversation, I'll, I'll at least pretend to try and be one. Um, but the, you know, again, some of my atheist friends. Mm. In fact, I had a conversation just just a couple of days ago with with someone, uh, an atheist YouTuber, on this, and on progress, he said, "Well, as far as I can see." We've made the most progress since Christianity's kind of been losing its grip. Okay, it, it, uh, you know that's we've we've really progressed in terms of our moral values and the way we you know treat people equally in culture. And certainly, you know, he would say, and and things like science and everything else. You know, it was only once the church lost its grip on controlling that that we were able to make some progress. So, so that's the common narrative, I think, that that progress is something that religion impedes. Christianity is kind of. So what, again, how can you make this claim that progress is, again, a fruit of the Christian revolution? I take a phrase that was made popular by Martin Luther King Jr., but he, he was quoting from a preacher 100 years earlier, um, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And it's, it's sort of passed into common parlance, mm, really. Mm. You know, Barack Obama had, had that phrase kind of woven into a rug and put into the Oval Office. You know, this is, this is what we, we really believe that, don't we? I wonder if Donald Trump changed the furniture. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I reckon he did. <laughs> the, yeah, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And of course, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. thought that because he's informed by all sorts of prophetic vision about, you know, swords will be, you know, beaten into plowshares and, mm. and justice will roll on like a never failing stream and... And, be, and, you know, Israel was in Egypt, but they were brought out into a promised land. And Christ did die the death of a slave, but he burst the bonds of, and, the, and the shackles of death and came out into the promised land of his resurrection. And, and it's a profoundly biblical vision of history that time is not a circle, mm -hmm. but it's an arrow and that it's heading somewhere. Again, that's not a natural, obvious, or universal thing to think. You know, you, you look around at the world, and there's day, and then there's night, and then there's day again. And then there's night, and then there's day again. So, like, what is time? Mm. It's a circle, right? Obviously, it's a circle. And yet, you page one of the Bible, it was evening, and it was morning the first day. And, okay, so the Bible is framing, oh, we, so we go from darkness and into light. The Bible on, on, on page one, and, and, and we start with simple things, and we end with... Everything being very good and God rests and there's a seventh day and there's completion. And like from chapter one of the Bible, you've got this profoundly different vision for history. And it is absolutely true that in the last 300 plus years, um, the graphs of GDP per person have been going up like a hockey stick. All sorts of graphs have been going up, up mm. like a hockey stick, in, including our pollution and mm. including mm. our carbon footprint and all that kind of stuff. It is absolutely the truth. But... I think, I think we ought to be curious about when and why the Industrial Revolution took hold, for instance. Um, now, there are all sorts of material causes like 
coal is abundant in the north of England and it's just near to the surface and so you can mine it really easily. And there's a Gulf Stream, which means at our latitude, our temperatures are a bit higher and we can you know, ship things around the place. And there, there are all sorts of sort of climate issues and geographical issues, but none of that gets off the ground unless you have a whole bunch of people who really believe first in progress. They, re they really believe in innovation. They really believe in reforming the evils of the past and actually saying, I don't care what so-and-so said 100 years ago, we're going to test that, which, which is why the scientific revolution happened in the West and not in the East. Because the, the idea that the Chinese were far cleverer, they were far more advanced, they had better instruments in the 15th century in terms of astronomy, but they didn't make the breakthroughs that the West had because the West was very comfortable with saying Aristotle's wrong. And the East were not at all comfortable with saying Confucius is wrong. Mm. We have a very different vision. So, so actually our vision of progress um, was one of the things that developed into the Industrial Revolution that's given us further faith in progress. The Christians already believed that you need to question the past and that tomorrow can be better today than today, but not without great struggle. And, and so certain beliefs alongside certain contingencies and freaks mm. of nature conspire to give us a kind of an industrial revolution. And, and certainly that has enriched us in like phenomenal ways, phenomenal ways. Such that, you know, in the day of Shakespeare, I, I heard this from Andrew Wilson, who's got a great book on this subject. He said, in the day of Shakespeare, um, the average income of the average person was exactly the same as it was in Solomon's day, <laughs> right? Like human civilization has been going along and then we've had this massive yeah. hockey mm. stick. And I would tell the story differently in terms of um, we, we progressed because we left behind Christianity. I would say um, progress was able to happen because of a certain theology of progress. But now that we've become richer, Christianity has become its own grave digger in, in so many ways, you know, which is, which is the, the, the sign that it is hard for the rich to, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? Mammon is a competing god <laughs> to God. Right. Um, and that enrichment has... Um, I think is what has shaped us spiritually speaking, such that those in the West are those who are less interested in God because we're much more interested in mammon. But that is not to say that Christianity is shrinking because globally Christianity is growing right. and atheism is shrinking. But I think the, the, the thing that makes a difference in the West more than anything else, I would say, is, is wealth. Right. That's, that's interesting. And Jesus had a bit to say about that, didn't he? Yeah, loads. Mm. I mean... Pinker, you mentioned, because mm. again, just on this progress thing, yeah. is he's well known for books like Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now, yeah. basically saying it's a bit of a myth that everything's worse. That's just kind of what the newspapers are telling us. Actually, if you look at all the graphs, the hockey sticks, you know, life expectancy, peace, so on, mortality, they're all going in the, a massively different direction. Right. And, and he basically says, you know, hence his most recent book on it, Enlightenment Now, it's about science reason mm. basically taking over from religion which mm. basically mm. held people back mm. and again even if arguably christianity somehow founded the idea of this arrow of time towards progress mm -hmm. there are people who say we can now dispense with that mm. okay because we, we're kind of on the trajectory and we've got far better tools for delivering it now than than religion which you know so what do you say to that because you know Pink will say, you know, the progress that we're seeing is it's got nothing to do with Christianity. 
Interestingly, you know, in, in those books, he quotes from the Bible, you know, and he quotes the, you know, the arc of the moral universe as long as it bends towards justice. And then he says, when Martin Luther King said that, or, um, you know, when, when that was first said in the 19th century, um, we didn't have the scientific tools to test that thesis. Now we do. And so I'm just, I'm just bringing um, empirical analysis mm. to the, the belief that Christians had without evidence. Um, and, and then he starts quoting things like, you know, we, we are beating our swords into plowshares, just as the ancient prophets said. And, and he talks about, you know, the, the reduction in, in violence. And, um, and so I, I, there's a sense in which I think Christians can just embrace a lot of what Stephen Pinker says and kind of say, yes, isn't it interesting <laughs> um, that on many metrics, things are getting better. Isn't that interesting? Because there were predictions about that written thousands of years ago, and they seem to be coming to pass. Um, but, but you don't want to go the whole way with Stephen Pinker, because you've got to ask the question, well, by what standard are we measuring progress? Like, is, is our moral character improved? Are, are, we, are, we, are we better human beings? Is, 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 is the, the, the fiber within us you know, more, more moral? I guess, and it goes back, I guess, to that question of, well, why, why are we aiming for a culture in which the poorest right. and the weakest are looked right. after well and, and do have good outcomes and everything else? That's right. not a, that wasn't yes. a given for the Romans and the Greeks and so on. No, exactly. And, and, and then I would bring you know, his other quote about, about saying, if you just think that sacrifice for your tribe is a virtue, then you might go with fascism. And you might think that human rights are the ultimate form of selfishness. Um, he weaves into his arguments in places, and I talk about this in the book, he weaves into his arguments certain smuggled-in assumptions that sound very much to me like the image of God in all people, <laughs> sound very much like the inviolable dignity and worth of, of, of all humans. Um, and, and again, I would just want to say those are brilliant humanistic beliefs and sign me up as a humanist, but I don't think, I don't think you can get there from secularism. I think humanism works because God the human has come and given an inviolable dignity and worth to, to, to humans. But I don't think secular humanism works because to say that we're biological survival machines and we should be kind is, is a moral leap we're right. unjustified to make. There's a, the a bit of theology going on in between those two things. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's an invisible bit of theology and we're just, we're just not good at investigating how theological we are right. and how very Christian-ish those theological assumptions are. That's also a big challenge to Christians who the who maybe it's a bit split with the theology is clear to them and then the results don't feel as aren't as tangible as the theology they're doing. So I think maybe it's quite challenging as well as quite encouraging. Yeah. Um and Nick Spencer, right, he's from Theos Tank and he's written a book called Magisteria and he's big on Christian humanism and has written beautifully about that as well. Um if that's the case, if we are bending towards justice, how do you see that manifest in this cultural moment? Hmm. Um, I make the case in the Bible that not all progress is good and some progress we should run from uh, at a million miles an hour. Um, you know, Chairman Mao had a great leap forward and tens of millions of Chinese paid with their lives, you know. Mm. And so um, our... Our problem is we want to entirely secularize and, and horizontalize progress as though it's just inherent to the historical process. But that just gives the powerful the justification for doing what they were going to do anyway, but claiming that it's in the service of historical inevitability. We, you know, we, we, are, 
we are climbing to the sunny up uplands. Come with me as I make my four-year plan or my five-year plan or whatever you know Stalin wanted to, wanted to do. And so um, not all visions of progress are equal. Um, in fact, I think the Christian vision for progress is not really the arc of the moral universe being like a rainbow where you go up and then you land at the pot of gold. I, I think the arc goes down, right? And the arc goes down into self-sacrificial love. It goes into you know the the sort of sacrifice that embodied that was embodied in the local church as they you know pick up the discarded infants and raise them as they have the hospitals as they, as they try and embody the, the the cross in people's lives. So I I, I get very um, nervous when people claim to know that they're on the right side of history. Mm -hmm. I don't think we are called to. Um, to proclaim such things, I think Jesus is, is the judge of all things. And what he calls me to do is not to pick a winning side and run with it. I think that's a, that's a huge danger. What he calls me to do is actually to serve the losers right now. You know? And I, th I think our society would be best if it's, if it's characterized by people not trying to be on the right side of history, but actually trying to serve um, those who are just on the wrong side of life right now. So I, I don't want to have a, a five-year plan or, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, I think in the, in the here and now, inspired by Jesus, we need to go down in service and sacrifice. And if that means being nobodies and if that means having no cultural influence and all that kind of stuff, well, so be it. Uh, we trust in a, in a God who raises the dead. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That made me think of, we uh, spoke to Paul Kingsnorth on mm. um, season one and progress hmm. makes him quite scared, I think. Yes, <laughs> some kind of progress, yeah. Seeing progress yeah. in that he is worried about what we're progressing towards. Do you, how do you square that with your thesis? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so he's found faith in a, in a more orthodox tradition. I was talking to another orthodox guy last week and, and um, he was very much wanted to say, look, Adam, Eden, garden, good. Yeah. And me as this Protestant was coming along and saying, but the city, the city, Graham, <laughs> we're, we're heading towards the city. And he was like, no, Glenn, garden, good. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, the, the reality is at the end of the Bible, there is a garden city. You know, the, the tree of life is there and the, and the river of life is, is there. And there is this integration of what, it, what is natural and the givens of where we've come from and, and honoring nature, as well as improving nature, as well as um, thinking that there might be a better tomorrow. And, and I, I, I think lots of my Orthodox friends look over at Protestants and kind of think, um, you're the reason, <laughs> right? Mm. You're the reason we've atomized into all these individuals who are just trying to use the planet, right? Mm. To you know, to to march forwards in in your you know your dream of progress, um, and I there's there's a, there is a sense in which the shoe fits to a degree, um, and so I I need to you know learn um, from those who are not in the Protestant tradition about that because I I think that that is a tendency that we go towards, um, but I I think there can be senses of progress as as long as it's the the servant hearted kind. As I, long as it's I the guess, sacrificial kind. but for me, I mean, I remember you know one of Paul's real worries was AI and technology mm. and where that's progressing. And, and it makes me think that in the West, by and large, the conversations we're having around that at the moment are probably, yes, informed by our Christian heritage, because it's questions around 
well, what does this mean? Should we put the brakes on? Is this good for humans or not and for our culture? Those moral qualms may not be the same in other places where they have the same technology. In fact, they might be ahead of us, you know, in China and places. So it's this question of technological progress, you know, yeah. just going down that road. And, and but what, what kind of moral vision we have to harness that and, and whether it's the right one. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the Jeff Goldblum thing in, in Jurassic Park. You know, the scientists thought that just because they could do it, they should do it. And, and classic line. Classic line. But um, we've, been, we've been here before in, in terms of, you know, wind back the clock a hundred or so years and you've got the scientific racists um, who were trying to give a, a, a vision for society that absolutely, you know, eliminated certain races from their from their from their vision. You, you have the Nazis again, who um, were into eugenics and and those sorts of visions. And the technology was was there for them to pursue a certain moral vision. And so you 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 cannot divorce the technological from from the moral. And the fact that China um, might want to do certain things with certain new technologies should be paused for thought. You know, in in terms of like what is the ideology, what is the what is the ethic? What is the theology that is driving um, so many of these things? But I think Christianity has some profound answers to the questions that are being thrown up by AI. You know, I think our, our very concept of the person and what is a person is something that was um, really developed in, in Trinitarian theology, you know, in those bad old medieval times, the, mm. the Dark Ages mm. gave us our doctrine of persons and of human rights and, 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 and of that concept of um, and, and, and I think Christianity gives us a, a profound sense of what is consciousness and um, has profound you know, contributions to, to, to that side of things and what is a flourishing society and all, all this kind of thing. So um, it's not that we, we should be um, simply Luddites and scared of, of the new. We're not scared of the new, but we do want to bring to bear a, a moral vision. Mm. And I think the moral vision that Jesus has cast for us, it certainly is the moral vision that's built our world to this point. And I, even if you're not a Christian, I think you'd be wise to, <laughs> to figure out what the Bible is saying about these things. Does it? When you think about um, the future, the quite near future, actually, even the present, are you, does it make you quite nervous or quite hopeful in that we're being forced to ask these questions? And then does that excite you or does mm. that sort of make you feel a little bit anxious? I, yeah, I, I think everybody gets nervous. I mean, the, the guys who did the Social Dilemma um, uh, documentary for Netflix mm. Mm. Um, have just done the AI Dilemma you know, wow. as a presentation mm. on YouTube. And, and one of the stats they give there is that 50% of those working in AI think there's a 10% chance of an extinction level event being <laughs> ushered in by AI. <laughs> and at that point, you're like, if 50% of the engineers of your airplane yeah. <laughs> thought there was a 10% chance, um, you know. Yeah. And so is it scary? Yes. Are there people with certain ideologies that... that um, that are in the mix here um, that I'm nervous about. You know, Yuval Noah Harari, who I've already mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. there was a, uh, a clip of his doing the rounds just uh, a few weeks ago saying, um, you know, he was saying, because of the technological advances, our big question now is what are humans for and why do we need so many of them? And when someone pushed back and said, what is your answer to that? And he said, well, my best answer is that we, we keep them docile through uh, computer games and drugs. And you're like, okay, am I nervous about that? <laughs> Fascinatingly, um, Harari said that at the, in the same TED talk where he said human rights are as much of a, a myth and a story as God and heaven is, right? And, and so I, I think there is a certain ideology and a certain theology 
um, that is incredibly dystopian from my way of, of seeing things. But is there is there a possibility for for Christians to bring some real intellectual heft to the question of what is a person, what is a human, what are we for, why are there so many of us, and what is the meaningful life? Um, I th I think we have an opportunity as well. I wonder as we just start to close things out. I think the book and and the way you put things does a great job of potentially persuading someone who may have no particular interest in faith or Christianity that they are a product of. A Christian society uh, and that you can't sort of ignore that it still leaves the question why that person would then want to become a Christian yeah. necessarily now you're an evangelist or should I put it a what was it public advocate for following Jesus <laughs> um yeah. what, what um I suppose I suppose that's the real question How, where does what difference does this make ultimately we can tell mm -hmm. people hey look look at what produced you mm -hmm. but but does it I mean what actual difference on the ground does it make I think we're very used to in evangelism talking about um, the Jesus-shaped hole in somebody. You know, somebody, an individual has a Jesus-shaped hole at the heart of their life, and it won't be filled by sex, money, power, and and it needs Jesus. Um, essentially, what I'm doing here is just saying there's a Jesus-shaped hole in culture, in society, and it really had the impression of the Jesus revolution on our culture is very Jesus-shaped. Mm. You know, we do believe in the Good Samaritan still. We still believe in freedom and progress and consent and enlightenment and, and these things. Um, and so what I, what I really just want to do is, is to explore people's moral intuitions and pull at the threads and, and see, I, I, have, I have a conviction that what is at the other end of that is either nothing or it's Jesus, right? Like it's, it's either a vibe, right? <laughs> Or there's something substantial, and that, that something substantial is Jesus. And, and so, like, a, a really obvious or practical thing is, you know, my, my neighbor um, just, he was on Facebook, and he just, he just showed me this, this video of, um, of a kid who was pr profoundly disabled, who was, um, he was like the, the basketball team kind of looked after the uniforms yeah. all season mm. in this high school basketball team, and he was brought on on the final game, and he was set up for the final shot, you know, and he missed the first shot, but that's okay. The opposition is even giving him the yeah, ball yeah. and he shoots again, and he misses, he shoots again. He, when, he, when, he, when he scores, oh my goodness, the, whole the place roof erupts. just yeah. erupts. And we both had, you know, this, this real spine tingling moment of watching pure compassion, right? <laughs> the, this pure moment of lifting up the lowly. And, you know, he's, he, he's genuinely lifted up on their shoulders and, and the, it's the, the, the victory of the, the one who was down and out. And, and we just got into a great conversation about why do we love that? Why do we love that story? And then I was just able to say, look, look for me, I, I think that's an echo of, of the Jesus story. You know, he, he is the one who is absolutely down and out and rose again for all the down and outs. And, and at the heart of Christian faith is that God is one who sacrifices. God is one who stoops and serves and suffers and bleeds and dies. You know, that's, that's the kind of God I can believe in. What do you reckon? And he was like, yeah, I've never thought about it like, like that. And, and man, we're, we're thinking about baptizing him, you know, <laughs> like, like in, the, in the autumn. He, um, uh, yeah, he's been coming to church for the last six wow. months. There's all sorts of transformation happening in his whole family. And the way in was just excavating that crater <laughs> called compassion and saying, this looks remarkably like Jesus, don't you think? And him saying, yeah. And then him meeting the one who is compassion on legs.
Wow. Well, thank you for being our, I'm going to quote you back here, clever, adaptable and mischievous animal for today's <laughs> interview, <laughs> a.k.a. a human. And so much more. So much more than that. Oh, it's been so interesting, yeah. so great. And really, um, what I loved is it's real instinct we're partnered with so mm. much intellect and history. Mm. And mm. there's such a myth that those two things just don't go together. Yeah. Yeah, um, right. So I love that this conversation has encapsulated yeah. all and, of those things. And it isn't pound shop Tom Holland. It's very good in its own right. The air we breathe. <laughs> it's, the, yeah. it's little by Glenn. Maybe Scrivener. Aldi. Yeah. Um, so we'll leave a link to that with today's okay. show. But thank, thank you, you so much for being our guest today. Pleasure. Ben. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Reenchanting podcast. Do subscribe to listen back to all our past episodes and help others to discover the show by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also find more videos, articles, and resources at seenandunseen.com. See you next time. Mm-hmm.